Well, congregation, let's open our Bibles now to Isaiah chapter 6. And we're going to consider today the first eight verses of this chapter. And this is in our series on worship. And today our topic is High Thoughts of God in Worship. And while you're turning to this passage of Scripture, we do have many visitors present, as was noted earlier, and we welcome all of you today. So here now, the Word of God, and this is the Word of God. It's the truth that He has revealed to us in words. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. And said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts." Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this hath touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here I am, send me. And thus we have the reading of God's holy and inspired word. And may God the Holy Spirit help us to understand it and apply it to our lives. A lot of churches nowadays think that they need to improve worship. Now, what I mean by this is that it's not enough for the people in the pews to sing the great hymns of the faith and to pray and to hear the Word of God read and proclaimed, but they also want to add all kinds of other things. They want nice color lights flashing around and loud music that fills the auditorium, and perhaps even in some cases, some kind of theatrical fog creating sort of a mystical feel to the worship service. You see, people add these kinds of things thinking that that they're helping God by making worship more interesting and more exciting for those who come. And we say, well, why do they think they need to do this? They seem to assume, I believe, that God by himself is rather dull. He's boring. And so unless they add the flash and the drama to the worship service, nobody's going to pay any attention to him. 
They've lost all the sense of God's majesty. And then there are others who maybe for exactly the same reason go in the opposite direction. And instead of trying to make worship more interesting, they just kind of give up and they think that there's nothing more to worship than, than planting a tree in your backyard. Jeremiah Burroughs, who was a 17th century Puritan and one of the members of the Westminster Assembly, made an observation about this in his book, Gospel Worship. He says this, The great reason why people come and worship God in a slight way, it is because they do not see God in his glory. Tis a great mercy for God to give us a sight of himself, a sight of his glory here in this world while we are worshiping of him. This would keep our eyes and our thoughts from wondering if we had a sight of the glory of God and had high thoughts of God. When you think about it, this is what we see in Scripture. The Lord didn't allow the Israelites to have low thoughts of him when he summoned them to the foot of Mount Sinai. No, instead we read in Exodus that God revealed himself in fire and blackness and terror. And John likewise, when he beheld the splendor of God's glory and revelation, saw something amazing. This is what he wrote. He said, And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne and sight like unto an emerald. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. We see the same thing today in our text. The prophet Isaiah had high thoughts of God. And he says so in verse 1. He says that he saw the Lord high and lifted up. And, and, and Isaiah's exalted thoughts of God put him and his service of God in perspective. And that's exactly what I want it to, want it to do for us today. I want us to understand who God is so that we will see and understand why we are here today and what we are supposed to be doing. Now you'll notice if you look at our text today that it begins in verse 1 with the death of King Uzziah. This is a very important fact that's recorded here. Because you see, Uzziah died at a very crucial time in the history of God's people. Three years earlier, King Jeroboam II, the king of the northern kingdom Israel, died. And when he died, he left the entire northern kingdom in a state of almost total anarchy. So the, so the northern kingdom is, 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 is in a bad condition. 
To the east, you had the mighty Assyrian Empire, which was growing in power. And in the south, in Judah, where King Uzziah was, the southern kingdom was already beginning to decline. And then, then Uzziah dies. And that only adds to, to the disorder of that day and time. And you notice that God uses this to show Isaiah who he really is. Because the earthly king is now out of the picture. Uzziah died. And what does God say to Isaiah the prophet? He says, you need to see who the real king is. You need to see the true king, the one who is alive and reigning. And that's what Isaiah saw in this chapter. He saw the Lord sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. And with this vision, God left no doubt for the prophet that he was going to accomplish his purposes, and it didn't matter how much chaos there was in the world around. God would save his people. He would reign over a kingdom that no man can destroy. This is the Lord that we need to see. Now to prepare the prophet Isaiah to declare this wonderful message, the Lord gave him this glimpse of himself and his glory. And think about what the prophet saw on this occasion. He did not see a weak king like Uzziah. Uzziah was weak. He was stricken with leprosy. He was becoming increasingly ineffective as a national leader in his later years. And now by the time that Isaiah saw this vision, Uzziah was stone cold in the grave. Couldn't do anything anymore. But that's not, the, that's not what Isaiah saw. He didn't see a king like that. Instead, he saw the most powerful monarch of all. He saw the Lord exalted in glory, and not reigning on the earth like Uzziah did, but reigning from above the earth, as only the God who made all things can. And the prophet's description of this heavenly king in our text is very specific. I want you to look at it with me. First of all, in verse 1, we're told that Isaiah saw the Lord. Now think about that for just a minute. In Hebrew, the word that's translated Lord is Adonai, which means master. It's emphasizing God's absolute sovereignty over creation, and particularly his absolute sovereignty over his people. In Psalm 110, there's a very interesting thing going on there where Jehovah, one person of the Godhead, invites Adonai, another person of the Godhead, to reign in exactly this way. He said, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So this is who Isaiah saw. Second, Isaiah not only saw the Lord 
But he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne. That is, he saw the Lord in a seat of honor and power that was reserved for kings and judges. But which was it here? Was it as a king or as a judge that Isaiah saw the Lord? Well, it seems to me that you can't really separate these ideas. We do it in our society. We separate the executive branch from the judicial branch. But that's not, not the way that the Bible speaks of it. Instead, in the Bible, what we see is as the Lord advances his kingdom, he inevitably judges and squashes all resistance to his kingdom. We see that in how the Heidelberg Catechism explains the second petition of the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. Our catechism reminds us that this is not only a a request for the Lord to preserve and increase his church, but it's also a plea for him to destroy all the works of the devil and every power that exalts itself against him. And you see, historically, it's important to keep these ideas together in our text to see that God revealed himself to Isaiah both as a king and as a judge. Because remember, that brutal Assyrian kingdom was on the rise, and it was becoming a powerful force in that part of the world. But not just that, but a lot of commentators believe that Uzziah died the very same year that the Roman Empire was founded. And remember, it was the Roman Empire that eventually would crucify Jesus Christ and persecute the people of God. And so God is here saying through this vision of, that Isaiah saw, the Lord sitting upon his throne, that he was in control. He knew all these things were going to happen. He knew they were on the way. But he had already judged these kingdoms that would rise up against him. He had already determined to advance the kingdom of his son in spite of these things. The third thing that Isaiah saw, told that he saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. That is very high. He was so high, in fact, that only the hem of his garment came down and covered the temple. That might seem like a small detail, but it's not. Because it it, it adds even more to the prophet's vision of God's glory and majesty. Because it reveals to us a particular aspect of God's character. It showed God as not just someone with amazing power, but also as someone who takes a pleasure in protecting the symbol of cleansing the symbol of forgiveness, the symbol of reconciliation. And so by covering that temple, the Lord was showing that he was guarding his promise to redeem his people through the coming Messiah. Now, just from what I've said, you can see that this vision that Isaiah saw was pretty powerful. And there's a lot more that we could talk about here. We see the seraphims, surrounding God's throne and magnifying his holiness, 
They cry, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Heaven and earth are full of his majesty and glory. In verse 4, we see that when the Lord spoke, it shook the temple and, and, uh, and, and, and the whole house was filled with smoke. I'm going to stop and not go into all of these details right now because I want to go directly to the heart of the issue here. And that is, who was it precisely that Isaiah saw sitting on the throne, high and lifted up, being adorned adored by the seraphim and projecting this wonderful image of protection for his people? Well, I think our text actually gives us an a, a, a hint at what the right answer here is. Isaiah saw the Lord. He saw Adonai, the sovereign king. And yet he, the vision he saw of this sovereign king was as a man sitting upon a throne and wearing royal garments. Now, who else could this be except our one Lord Jesus Christ, who is both fully God and fully man? And we don't have to guess about this, because Jesus himself referred back to this vision in John chapter 12, and he tells us that he was the one that Isaiah the prophet saw on this occasion. He said, these things said Isaiah when he saw his glory and spake of him. Isaiah saw the Savior of men. Now, as God's people, we know that the world is constantly changing all around us. And in our day, a lot like Isaiah's day, it seems like the changes are more for the worse than they are for the better. But this passage calls us to remember that our God, our Lord Jesus Christ, reigns from the throne. And we need to remember this especially when we gather together for public worship. Again, let me read to you a little bit from Jeremiah Burroughs on this. He says, We should at all times have high thoughts of God. Take heed of having low thoughts and apprehensions of the infinite majesty of God at any time, but especially when thou art to worship the great King. Then look upon the Lord in that infinite distance that there is between him and thyself, Yea, that infinite distance that there is between him and all the creatures in the world. Look upon the Lord as lifted up in glory, not only above all creatures, but above all excellencies that all angels and men in heaven and earth are able to imagine. Look upon the Lord as having all excellencies in himself joined in one, and that immutably. Look upon him as the fountain of all excellency, good and glory that all creatures in the world have. 
And look upon the Lord every time thou comest to worship him as the God whom angels do adore and before whom the devils are forced to tremble. Before him in this his glory, and this will help thee to sanctify his name when thou comest to him. See here, when we have this understanding of God's holiness and and his glory, we can come before him confidently, even in the most trying of times, knowing that he works all things together for his good and glory and for our good. That's what he's promised us in his word. Now, there's another part to this that we should not miss, and that is that high thoughts of God must also produce in us a corresponding low thought of ourselves. When Isaiah heard the seraphim proclaim God's triple holiness, look at what he said. He humbled himself and he said, Woe is me! For I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And you see, it's this kind of humility is what we see whenever God's people are confronted with his holiness. When Moses saw the burning bush, The Lord commanded him to take off his shoes. Why? Because the ground on which he stood was holy. It was holy because that was where God revealed himself to Moses as the unchanging I am. And a little bit later, Moses himself wondered why the people of Israel would listen to him. Because he, as he described himself, had uncircumcised lips. That is, his lips were unclean. They were filthy. They were unfit to speak holy things. They were unfit to speak for God. And Gideon also confessed his unworthiness when he saw the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Son of God, Judges chapter 6, verse 22 says, When Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And Daniel 2, when Daniel had the vision of the man clothed in linen, his response was the same. There remained no strength in me, he wrote, For my comeliness was turned in me into corruption, and I retained no strength. And the crucial point in all of this for us is that no one can truly worship and serve the Lord without first understanding God's holiness and his own relationship to that holy God both as a creature of God and as a sinner. 
And what did Isaiah see when he looked upon himself? Look at it with me again. First, he says that he was undone. That is, the word there literally means to be cut off or to be unraveled. Uh, He's saying that he was separated from this thrice holy God. He was cut off because of his sin, a barrier that he had no way to cross by himself. Then he goes on to say that not only was he undone, but his lips were unclean, just like Moses said that his lips were uncircumcised. Isaiah said that his lips were unclean. Isaiah was raising the question, how could he preach the perfect holiness of Adonai when his lips were unfit to utter such amazing truths? But it wasn't just Isaiah who had unclean lips, because the third thing that Isaiah remembered in our text today is is that he dwelt in the midst of a people who had unclean lips. So he was just like everybody else. Nobody that he would preach to was any more fit to discuss the holiness of God than he was. And the fourth thing that Isaiah saw at the very end of verse 5, he tells us that he saw the king, the Lord of hosts saw the king with his own eyes. Now remember, this was something that no mere man could do and live. God's holiness is more than anyone can comprehend. And even when Moses wanted to see it, all he got to see was the back parts. And yet Isaiah looked upon this vision of the Son of God sitting upon the throne. Isaiah's self-assessment was dead on. He was also right about the fact that there was nothing he could do himself to change it. But that's the amazing thing about this. A vision of God's holiness is, is often the very thing that God uses to prepare us for greater service. And so God here does for Isaiah the prophet what Isaiah could not do for himself. God showed Isaiah more of his holiness. Isaiah said, I can't bear the holiness I've seen. And God says, I'm going to show you more. And what did God show him? God showed him the holiness of his saving love and mercy towards sinners a holiness that provided for the restoration of sinners to his favor. Because you see, as soon as Isaiah confessed his sin, one of the seraphim took a burning coal from off the altar and pressed it against Isaiah's lips. And he said, Thine iniquity is taken away and thy sin purged. That's it. The searing of the prophet's lips showed figuratively that God had made him worthy to worship him and to declare his holiness. 
his filth and corruption were gone. And Isaiah knew that. Because when the Lord asked that very important question in verse 8, whom shall I send and who will go for us? At this point, the prophet Isaiah didn't delay. He immediately jumped to his feet and said, here am I, send me. I will go, I will do this for you. You see, Jesus Christ took away all of our sin. He didn't do it symbolically by pressing a hot coal to our mouth, but he did it in reality by bearing every one of our sins upon the cross. His sacrifice makes us acceptable to God. It allows us to enter his presence in true worship, It helps us to understand even better than Isaiah did that the God that we worship is a holy God. He's too holy to look upon sin and therefore he provided forgiveness to those who come to him through Jesus Christ. Now, what does this morning's passage teach us about worship and service? I want you to consider just a few things with me. To begin with, the fact that Isaiah's sin had to be removed before he could serve the Lord means that we must never attempt to serve God according to our own depraved desires. Some of our fleshly desires seem outwardly pious. And there are times when we can pass them off as if they're the greatest thing under the sun. But so often they conceal a bitter wickedness down inside. We have an example of that in the New Testament. There was a man named Simon who heard the gospel And after hearing it, he wanted to distribute the Holy Spirit around like the apostles were doing. And you say, well, wasn't that a good thing? Well, yeah, in a sense it was. But his reason for doing it wasn't good. It was pure evil. And that's evident in the fact that he offered the apostles money to get the power to be able to do it. And so Peter declared of this man that he was in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So just because something something seems good on the outside doesn't mean that it really is good. And beyond that, if we can't trust our own desires in this way, then can we trust the desires of others? Can we allow ourselves to be distracted by what other people want? Remember, Isaiah wasn't the only one in our text who had unclean lips. So also did everybody else who lived in that very day. No one was in any better position than Isaiah to speak about God's holiness. No, on the contrary, the worship of God requires high thoughts of God's glory and majesty. 
very high thoughts. We must come before him with reverence and fear. And that's why I quoted from Psalm 89 for our call to worship today, because verse 7 of that psalm talks about this. It says, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Now, of course, when the psalmist talks about fear here, he's not talking about a slavish fear that makes men cower in dread, but it's talking about having a true estimation of God's glory and power and wisdom and might and greatness. It's a recognition that we stand before a God who is supremely holy and just. It's understanding that his name alone is worthy of all praise and honor. You see, when we have high thoughts of God, we don't need the visuals and, and and the sound effects that we find in some churches, all the fancy lights and the smoke and things like that. And we don't need to fear coming to something that's boring because we know that our God is anything but boring. Worshiping him becomes our greatest joy. It's the longing of our souls. It's our chief delight. Nothing can give us greater satisfaction than standing before the king. So how can spotlights take the place of that? How can fog machines compare to the glory of the one who inhabits all eternity? You see, the drama was for a church under age, the Old Testament church. But what we have today in the New Covenant is much, much better than smoke and darkness and things like that. Because we have a Savior who has reconciled us to himself by the blood of the cross. And it's at the cross that we see God's holiness far more clearly than it could ever be conveyed in darkness and smoke. Amen.